This is Barry Zelma speaking for Claim School Incorporated's blog, Zelma on Insurance. Today I'd like to speak about the interesting way the law in Michigan works with regard to its no-fault insurance program called the PIP Benefits Program, where Michigan will allow a fraudster to receive PIP benefits, which are statutory, but no UMUIM benefits, which are contractual. It's odd, but fraud can succeed in Michigan. Now, the plaintiff, Jonathan Jones, appealed the trial court's order granting summary disposition in favor of defendants' homeowners insurance company, American Country Insurance Company, and Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company with respect to plaintiffs' claims for uninsured and underinsured motorist benefits and first-party personal protection insurance, PIP, benefits under the No Fault Act, MCL 500.3101 at SEC. Although the defendants disputed their priority to pay PIP benefits, the trial court did not decide the priority issue, but instead dismissed all claims on the basis of anti-fraud provisions in the insurance company defendants' respective policies. In Jonathan Jones v. Homeowners Insurance Company et al., the Court of Appeals of Michigan on August 18, 2022, produced what it probably believes to be a Solomon-like decision. The basic facts of the case arose from a motor vehicle accident on October 28, 2017, in which the plaintiff's vehicle was struck by a vehicle driven by defendant Charnetta Henderson in Detroit. Plaintiff alleged that he was operating a 2009 Ford Crown Victoria and was stopped at a red light when Henderson's vehicle, traveling at a high rate of speed, drove through a red light and struck his vehicle. Plaintiff sued all three insurers for recovery of no-fault PIP benefits, and also uninsured and underinsured motorist benefits. All three insurers filed motions for summary disposition, asserting that the plaintiff's claims were barred by anti-fraud provisions in the respective policies. In support of their allegations of fraud, the defendants relied on surveillance evidence from February, June, and July of 2018, which contradicted plaintiff's statements regarding the scope of his injuries and pain, his physical limitations, and his inability to work. The trial court found that there was no genuine issue of material fact the plaintiff committed fraud by making material misrepresentations in his deposition and held that all three insurers were entitled to summary disposition on the basis of the anti-fraud provisions in the policies and accordingly dismissed all claims against the insurers. Now, with regard to summary disposition of claims, there is a priority 
under the Michigan statute 500.3114, the No Fault Act. Initially, the Court of Appeal concluded that the trial court erred by failing to address which insurer had priority to pay PIP benefits. The general rule is that one looks to a person's own insurer for no-fault benefits unless one of the statutory exceptions applies. An individual may be entitled to PIP benefits mandated by the No-Fault Act even if the person is not, not a named insured. And under a no-fault policy, and such a person is not subject to the policy's anti-fraud provisions. Because the plaintiff's entitlement to no-fault benefits was governed by statute, the exclusionary provisions in the defendant's no-fault policy did not apply and could not operate to bar the plaintiff's claims. So in Michigan, no-fault means no-fault at all, including fraud, you still get paid. Accordingly, the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court's order granting summary disposition and remanded the case for a determination of the priority of the potential insurers, whether plaintiff is entitled to benefits under a policy, and whether the benefits arise by statute or contract. Although the trial court concluded that summary disposition was appropriate because of the anti-fraud provisions of the insurance policies at issue, it failed to determine whether plaintiff was considered an insured for purposes of the policies and whether any alleged fraud occurred to induce the policies as opposed to post-procurement fraud and whether statutory or common law defenses were available in light of the fraud at issue. And it cited to various cases holding that if the alleged fraud did not influence or induce the policy's procurement, and anti-fraud provisions are invalid when they purport to apply to misrepresentations or fraud, that occur after the policy has been issued. That's different, however, with regard to under, uninsured and underinsured motorist benefits because the PIP statute doesn't refer to them. Plaintiff's complaint also included claims for uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage. The insurance policy itself will govern the interpretation of its provisions regarding uninsured motorist coverage benefits, which are not required by statute. In cases in which uninsured motorist benefits are issue, at issue, the policy definitions are controlling. Accordingly, because uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage is not mandated by the No Fault Act, there is no prohibition against informant enforcement of the anti-fraud provisions in the defendant insurer's policies applied to this coverage for uninsured or underinsured motorist policy claims. The evidence reflected that plaintiff made repeated statements 
at his December 2018 deposition regarding his pain and physical limitations following the accident, which he claimed affected his mobility and ability to lift items and his ability to work. These statements were directly contradicted and established to be factually inaccurate by the surveillance evidence, which showed plaintiff moving freely without apparent pain and discomfort and repeatedly lifting heavy items into a vehicle. Accordingly, the trial court properly concluded that the evidence specifically plaintiff's deposition testimony and the surveillance evidence established that there is no genuine issue of material fact regarding whether plaintiff made false and material misrepresentations, knowing the representations to be false. False statements made during discovery do not provide grounds to void the policy. To be clear, once an insurer fails to timely pay a claim and suit is filed, the party's duties of discovery and disclosure are governed by the rules of civil procedure, not, not the insurance policy. A plaintiff insured only commences suit after the defendant insurer denies the plaintiff's claim, and that denial cannot possibly be based on an event that has not yet taken place. This does not mean, however, that a defendant cannot rely on evidence of fraud obtained after litigation commences. It simply means that the evidence must relate to fraud that took place before the proceedings began. Plaintiff's statements during his deposition, which took place after litigation commenced, cannot be used to implicate an anti-fraud provision in the policies. However, fraudulent statements made before litigation is commenced properly can be considered and can implicate anti-fraud provisions in an insurance policy. In this case, plaintiff participated in a recorded interview with a homeowner's representative on February 16, 2018, before this litigation was commenced. Plaintiff made all of the same false statements he made in his later deposition. At the time of his recorded statement, Plaintiff lied about the extent of his injuries and his condition that was proved false by the surveillance evidence. Viewing the evidence in a light most favorable to Plaintiff, there is no genuine issue of material fact that plaintiff made material misrepresentations regarding his physical limitations, including his ability to conduct his daily activities of living, that were established by the surveillance evidence to be factually incorrect and untruthful. The surveillance evidence was clear, uncontroverted, and undermine plaintiff's claim that his injuries hindered his ability to care for himself. The evidence was also such that reasonable minds could not disagree that plaintiff made the statements during his recorded interview knowing that they were false and with the intent that a no-fault insurer would act on them to determine that he was entitled to coverage accordingly. The Court of Appeal concluded 
that trial court did not err by dismissing plaintiff's claims for uninsured and underinsured motorist benefits on the basis of plaintiff's fraudulent misrepresentations. In sum, the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court's order granting defendant's summary disposition with respect to plaintiff's claim for uninsured or underinsured motorist benefits, but reversed the order to the extent that it dismissed plaintiff's claim for PIP benefits and remanded the case for further proceedings. In my opinion, the Michigan no-fault statute needs amendment to deprive a person of benefits if he or she commits fraud in the presentation of the claim. This case allows the plaintiff to collect no-fault benefits even though his presentation of claim is clearly false and fraudulent. The trial to determine the extent of those benefits because of the fraud will be interesting and limited. Of course, since the fraud is so obvious, Plaintiff Jones should be arrested, tried, and convicted for insurance fraud under the state's criminal statutes. Michigan's Insurance Code Section 500.4503 and 500.4511 make it a felony to knowingly lie about or conceal an important fact in connection with an insurance claim or payment made under an insurance policy. Applying to ins issuing fake insurance policies and rate fixing also includes conspiracy to do any of the above. As a result, the court should have referred Jones to the district attorney. Its opinion does not say it did so. It could have done so separately and it should have. This video was adapted from my blog, Zalma on Insurance, available at www.zalma.com blog, and is free to anyone who wishes to read it or to see these videos. If you found this video useful or interesting, please tell your colleagues and friends about it and have them subscribe so that they miss none of the blog postings. Thank you for your attention.